You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are uh, new, just want to say welcome. I want to give you a little heads up on where we have been uh, in a sermon series to not catch you off guard. So we've been in a sermon series um, called Gender for the Glory of God and how to understand how God has created us, why he's created us as gendered beings, And what does that mean for our discipleship if you're a Christian here today? And obviously a big part of that is sexuality. And so today we're going to be thinking about a theology of sex. And the key question today is this. What does gender have to do with how humans have sex? Like does it really matter? What does gender have to do with how humans have sex and does it really matter? It's a great question. But I want to just say from the outset that I have a modest goal this morning and we're going to leave many questions unanswered and there's going to be a lot of maybe things that are stirred up that we just don't have time to address and God willing over the course of the life of a church community, um, we have time together to deal with things, all sorts of different things. And there's only so much we can do in one sermon. So basically, here's my goal for this morning. I want to equip you with a basic, simple framework for how to articulate what the Bible shows us about God's will for sexuality. Could you explain that to someone who doesn't share your convictions? Not that you would necessarily convince them, but at least just faithfully explain. Here's what the Christian worldview says about sexuality. I imagine sometimes scenarios that could get me in trouble. So someone sticks a mic in my face and wants an immediate soundbite about something. And maybe it's, hey, isn't it true that Christians are super sexually restrictive? Go. Isn't it true that Christians believe that gay people should be straight? Go. Isn't it true that Christians are just obsessed with telling people who they should sleep with and who they shouldn't? Go. What am I going to say if someone sticks that mic in my face and demands an answer? What would I say? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is, how much time do you have? Right? I I really believe that it's not wise to be backed into some type of a soundbite corner. Right? It's very unwise to be reduced to a Twitter post about Christian sexuality. It's too beautiful. It's too profound for that. So what I would want to say is simply this. If you want to understand why Christians believe 
what Christians believe about what they do about sex, you have to back up the train a long way and first understand some foundational concepts like we did in week one of this series. How Christians use their bodies to glorify God and sexuality being a subset of that. To understand that, man, is way downstream from other foundational concepts. So my goal today is hopefully just to equip you to be able to have that kind of conversation if someone is genuinely curious. So let me, let me cla- uh, start with a classic cultural example, and then we'll contrast that with the Christian view. This is a cultural example, extremely popular, 4.6 billion views on YouTube in my research this week. Billion with a B. See if any of you know this lyric. I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. Although my heart is falling too, I'm in love with your body. And last night you were in my room and now my bed sheets smell like you. Every day discovering something brand new. I'm in love with your body. That is the uh, cultural prophet Ed Sheeran. <laughs> For anybody who's not among the 4.6 billion. All right. Great song. I mean, I used to be a songwriter for a living. Catchy. Ed, you did a great job, right? The culture has spoken. It's popular. It's singable. It's a perfectly crafted pop song. And it's a perfect example of how our culture thinks about sex. So I want to say to Ed, Ed, man, it's, it's, it's good to, to recognize beauty and physical attraction, as part of a sexual relationship. Again, the song is super catchy, but here's the question. Here's the question. And it makes me sad. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but it does make me sad when I hear this song. Because what I want to say is, Ed, are you going to stay in love with the shape of her 20 years from now? After she's had a few kids and her body has changed. And for all of us, it's just a matter of time. Gravity's taken over, right? Ed, are you going to be in love with her body then? What are you going to do then? See, it, it seems like the sexual expression in this song is based on physical attraction alone. That's what the song's all about. I'm in love with your body. What about her mind? What about how she beautifully serves others? How about how she lays down her life for her family or her neighbors? How about what you read in Proverbs 31? See, what we need to be asking is if, if what's articulated in that song, I'm in love with the shape of you, can that sustain over time? Can that really prove to be fulfilling as we know that we want to be fulfilled? It seems like it's just kind of focused on selfish desires. But here's the question, straight up honest. After you've had sex in all the positions, then what? After her body changes and attraction changes, then what? 
after you get totally used to her body and then happen to see another woman's body that you like and fall in love with that body, then what do we do? See, the underlying assumption in our culture is that sex ultimately is about me getting what I want. And if I can find someone who's willing to enter into a transactional relationship with me where I give what, what, or I get what I want and that other person gets what they want, then I guess we're okay. And the transaction is contingent. The transaction continuing is contingent on you and me just figuring out how to negotiate that one. And if it changes, I'm out. So ultimately, sex is about me. Sex is an end in itself. The problem with this is that it's so flimsy. It's so flimsy. You never arrive. Ultimately unsatisfying. But God, the one who created sex and loves sex, has a better way of doing things that is for our flourishing. And it's way more satisfying if we have ears to hear. And that's what we're going to try to understand today. So where do we start? Well, we don't start with sex. We start with God. And the starting place for understanding anything about who we are and how we're created is who God is and what he has said. So point number one, if I'm going to sit down with that person and they ask me about why do Christians have the views they do about sex? We'll say, well, we're not going to talk about sex. What we're going to talk about first is does God exist and has he spoken? And the, theologically, we call this the doctrine of creation and the doctrine, doctrine of revelation. And that's just a fancy way of saying God is there and he has spoken. He has revealed himself. God is there. He exists. I'm not him. And he has something to say. But see, if th those things are not true, then it just totally makes sense. Do what feels right. If God is not there and he has nothing to say, then go where your feelings lead you. That just makes sense. If we're just a cosmic accident, the random concoction of whatever happened over the course of evolutionary time and space, and we really have no purpose, and there really is no transcendent meaning, then why not just, have, why not just do what feels right? I mean, it really makes sense. And that's the overarching cultural view of sexuality. Yes, it is simplistic, but I think it's accurate. And the evidence is just turn on Netflix for five minutes and pick any show or turn on media of any sort. And you'll see that if you're asking the question, what is the culture view about sex? You'll see that it's what I've articulated most likely. But the Christian claim is that God is there and he has spoken and we're not a cosmic accident. We're the product of God, and he created us for his glory so that we could find the truest and most lasting joy in being satisfied in relationship to him, the doctrine of creation and revelation. That's what we start with. God is there, and he has spoken. That's the foundation. And so we won't get anywhere unless that is the foundation, okay? So that's what we articulate first. 
God exists and he has something to say. So what has he said about sexuality? It's a good question. Good question. I'll just summarize for us. This is just baseline Christianity 101 when it comes to sexuality. This is what the Bible teaches. Sex is created by God to be an expression to be, I'm sorry, sex is created by God to be expressed between one man and one woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage. Sex is created by God to be expressed between one man and one woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage. So where do we get the foundation for this statement? Well, it comes in a text that we've already looked at, but we're going to look at it again because it is so foundational, and it's Genesis chapter 2. And it'll be on the screen. Um, You don't need to turn there because we're going to be jumping around quite a bit today. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 24. This is the foundation for marriage and sex within marriage. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So there's marriage. God created it. God ordained it. God designed it. And they shall become one flesh. That's another way of saying they experience oneness spiritually, emotionally, and then sexually or physically. That's what one flesh means. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's another way of saying complete vulnerability. Okay? And, and the sexual relationship would be an expression of that complete vulnerability one to another in marriage. So the Bible teaches that this was the first marriage and God designed it. He says it's really, really good. And one facet of the marriage relationship that God designed and ordained is the sexual relationship. Okay? So that's really simple. That's the first thing that we learn about sex in the Bible. That it exists so that the human race can continue through being what Bible calls being fruitful and multiplying. So we have kids. And it's also an expression to unite man and woman together in an intimate way through joining their bodies together so that they can express this oneness that they have. So sex doesn't exist as, a, as, a, as an end in itself. It only exists as an expression of oneness in marriage. That's the biblical view. So what's, what happens next in the storyline of Scripture? Well, what happens next, just sadly, like six verses after this, is sin poisons and pollutes everything. And sin is essentially this. Sorry, God, I'm not going to listen. I don't want to hear what you have to say, and I'm going to do things on my own. I'm going to do things my way. That's exactly what we see Adam and Eve did. Satan was talking to them, and they're like, oh, sounds pretty cool. I think I'll listen to Satan instead of God. And the lie from Satan was basically that God is a tyrant. God is holding you back. So you need to express your individuality. You need to express your autonomy. You need to express your independence and do things your own way because God's just holding you down. He's holding you back. You've got desires in here, Adam and Eve, so just follow where they lead. You see that this apple is good to be eaten, go for it. And ever since, we've been doing the same thing, saying, God, I just don't want to listen. That's why Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, 
And ever since then, there's been chaos in the world. And there's been sexual chaos in the world. But now, fast forward many, many centuries, what does God do? He sends a Savior to rescue us from that chaos. Jesus came to save us from the prison of just listening to our feelings. Jesus died so that we, we could be united to him and that we would listen to his feelings over our own feelings. He came to turn our hearts back to God and see him as our loving father who takes away our sin and shame and restores us to a beautiful relationship with the living God. Jesus came to to remove our sin so that we could have deep intimacy and relationship with God as his people united together in the church. And here's where it gets really, really cool. God has given us a picture that displays and reminds us of that gospel truth. And it's marriage and sexuality within marriage. It's a picture that reminds us of the truth of how Jesus has come to save sinners and gather them to himself to be united with them forever. That's where we're headed. That's what I'm going to show you. This is where we get to see the profound beauty of why God created marriage and sex in marriage. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and talking about marriage. And what is marriage? Why does it exist? How does gender get expressed in marriage? Why is it beautiful? What is it for? And what we've learned is that the existence of marriage is not an end in itself. You remember that? Just like sex is not an end in itself. What, what do we learn? We learn that ultimately what, what Paul shows us here in Ephesians 5 is that marriage exists to reflect the love that Jesus has for his people. Did you hear that? It's a reflection. Does a mirror exist for itself? No, it exists to reflect something. Right? So wives submit to husbands as husbands seek the cherishing and nourishing of their wives in Jesus-like leadership. And here's one part of Ephesians 5 that we didn't talk about that I want to show you this morning. Paul summarizes all of this. And in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, he says this. Well, look at this. He's just quoting the text that I just read. He's quoting Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So he's like, remember the first marriage? God created it. And the two shall become one flesh. They have a sexual relationship. This mystery is profound. And here's the statement. Paul says, I'm saying that it refers, what? Marriage and sexuality. I'm saying that it, marriage and sexuality, refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's the point? The point is that marriage and a sex life found within this God-ordained boundary, it isn't even about us ultimately. 
It's not even about us. It runs so much deeper than just physical pleasure and satisfying primal desires. That's what the culture wants us to believe. But the Bible teaches us, the Christian worldview teaches us that it's so much deeper and richer than what our culture shows us about sex just being a way to get what you want. Marriage and sex within marriage is simply a temporary picture of the unity that God has with his people. It's very important to remember, the picture will not always exist because it's pointing to something. And one day what it's pointing to will be a reality. History is moving towards an ultimate end point where we will see a new day dawn, eternity. And in that day, what you'll see is that we don't need the picture anymore. The picture will just be like a shadow. Marriage and sexuality won't even exist anymore because the intimacy that we have with our God is going to be so profound. Human sexuality will just seem superficial because it's, it's a picture. It's pointing to something beyond it. And once the reality has come, you won't need the picture, right? Let me just show you how this works. It's so beautiful. The end of the Bible, Revelation 21. Look at what it says. This is when history is over. The purposes of God come to final fruition. Here's what John says. This is what he saw predicting what will happen one day that we long for. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, listen, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That marriage language is not coincidental. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's intimacy. That's oneness. There will be no hindrance. You know how we know? Because here's what's going to happen. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed Away And behold, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So here's the point. Jesus will fully and completely be united to his people to live, heavenly, to live happily ever after. And it's going to be like a marriage. Like our temporal marriages now point to this final marriage. This is what marriage and sex and marriage points to. Models, pictures. This is the ultimate picture of intimacy that we long for. Complete oneness, no hindrance. Sin is not getting in the way between a husband and his bride. And when you sit at the kitchen table, if you're married and drink coffee and discuss the news of the day or whatever, whatever it is, that's just a tiny little slice 
And in your bedroom, when you have sex, just a tiny little slice. When you raise those kids together, just a tiny little slice of this. It's all heading this direction. That's why you're married. And that's what sexuality and marriage is supposed to point to. Ultimate intimacy. He created it to point beyond us. He created it to display the selfless love that Jesus has for his people as he dies for them to save them and rises from the dead so so that they could experience freedom from the power of sin and be intimately united to him forever. So there you have it from Genesis to Revelation, a theology of sexuality. So now let's talk implications. What are the implications of, of sexuality being existing in marriage just for the sake of a picture, to point us to the glory of God and what he's doing in history, to remind us of this is how God relates to his people? Let's talk implications. Well, this is why we would say that sex outside of marriage is a big deal. Why? Because God's trying to rob you of your joy? No, because he has a better way. He has a better way when we embrace his picture. And so what is his picture? Well, his picture is not being partially committed to his people. That's what sex outside of marriage is. It's having the benefit of being married without the full commitment. But what does the picture tell us? What does God's picture tell us? It tells us that Jesus is fully committed to his people. Sex outside of marriage doesn't demonstrate that. It's just so partial commitment. So it's a deviation from the picture. We don't want to mess around with or change God's sacred picture. This is why gender matters in sexuality. Because our gender is a reflection of how God created marriage to display Jesus and his bride. Said simply, it's, it's not a groom and a groom. It's not a bride and a bride. It's a groom and his bride. That's the picture. And gender is, is bound up in that picture. So we can't change God's sacred and beautiful picture. He's the one that designed it. This is why adultery is such a big deal. Because because Jesus doesn't cheat on his bride. Jesus will never leave his people. We can't change the sacred, beautiful picture that God has given us. This is why pornography is such a big deal. Because pornography exists to use people as a means to an end. Using other human beings to get what we want, no matter how it affects those people who are being used. But see, marriage exists to display the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus not using people to get what he wanted, but he gave of himself selflessly so that we could have what we most needed. That's what marriage and the beauty of marriage and sexuality in marriage, it operates best when it's selflessness. Selfishness 
always poisons it. And that's what pornography is. Ultimately, it's pornography takes. It's all selfish. But we can't mess with God's picture. We can't change God's beautiful picture that he's given us. This is why polygamy or polyamory is, is a big deal. Because Jesus doesn't have two brides. He has one. The church, his people. Jesus is not conflicted because he's having to negotiate relationship with two different brides. He has one. So we can't change God's sacred picture. See, all of these are deviations from the picture of why marriage and sex and marriage exists. So this is a basic just understanding of the Christian worldview in reference to marriage and sex within Marriage. God created marriage to display the glory of Jesus, laying down his life for his people so they could be saved and united to him in oneness forever. And sex is a small reflection of that within the beauty of marriage. So, to, to summarize, what's our starting point? Our starting point is God and that he exists and he has spoken. He's spoken in Jesus. He's spoken in the prophets in the Old Testament. He speaks in creation. And he speaks in this word. If he hasn't spoken, then yeah, just do what's right. Do what, I mean, do what feels right. But that's not what is true. God is there and he has spoken. And we understand that he has a plan for sexuality that's about our flourishing. It's by him and for him. And the more we see this and embrace it, the more we can experience freedom and joy of living how he designed us to flourish. But let me leave you with this. This kind of a sermon can land on people with a unique weight. And it'd be easy for many of us to leave here with a weight of condemnation. Because the reality is all of us all of us in the room, in one form or another, have been sexual sinners. But I want to remind you of something. One of the most beautiful things you'll see when you read about Jesus in the Gospels is when you notice how he relates to sexual sinners. Does he beat them up? Does he cast them aside? Does he demand that they just get themselves together in a harsh, overbearing way. It's not. That's not what you find. You find that Jesus has grace for all sinners. That's why he died, especially sexual sinners. See John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. See John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. See the woman who anointed his feet with her hair and her tears. He who's been forgiven much, loves much. So Jesus will not reject you if you come to him. You're, you're free to bring your sexual mess, no matter what it is, to Jesus. He'll receive you. He'll receive you. 
If you turn to him and turn away from your sin, he will forgive you. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. Look to the cross. Look away from your sin. Look to the cross and the empty tomb and see the love of God on display for sexual sinners. Where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in our place as our perfect substitutes. It's what we deserve the wrath of God for tearing apart his beautiful picture. But we see in the picture when we know it and believe it and embrace it that we can be forgiven. That we can be forgiven. And then that will motivate us to want to use our bodies in a way that glorifies him. It takes the attention off ourselves and places it back on him. And then when I'm just staggered by the grace of God, moment by moment, day after day, how could I not want then to glorify God with my body? Because Jesus laid down his body so that I didn't have to bear the wrath of God. He did that for me. And he rose again to new life. Showing me that the, the, the penalty of sin is, is conquered. Death. And so now as I'm united to him, listen, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's unity. It's called union with Christ. I'm united to him now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that's true, I can know that one day, I'll be fully and completely united to him. And right now, this marriage relationship, if you're married, is a reflection of that one-day one union that I will have. And this marriage thing will be gone and over, but I will be one with my Savior. We will be one with our Savior. And that's why marriage and sexuality exists. And that's what it's for, to display the glory of that Message. So don't walk out of here with a, a weight of condemnation. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will forgive you and free you to walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, would you help us do this for the sake of your glory and our joy? Lord, would you help us display your greatness and goodness in how we use our bodies, how we use our words, so that the world can see the greatness of who you are and what you've done in history. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.